1 Peter chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 12. We are continuing our study through 1 Peter. If you're new, this is your first time that you're here, I want to encourage you to jump in with us. There are reading plans at the doors. Uh, we're honestly about to finish 1 Peter. We're about to jump into the last chapter after this week. But it's, it's a short letter. I mean, you can easily catch up with us and begin to read and study along. As we get into the summer, we'll take some time and study the one another, the local body of believers, and what Tri-Cities calls membership promises, but really it's just these biblical charges given to us, the church, for one another and how we're to live. And we'll look at a few of those and just be reminded what it is to be a part of a local body of believers. We'll do that through the summer. And then as we jump back into the fall, we'll jump into Second Peter and just kind of keep going. But 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Did you hear that? You might have missed it. I'll read it again. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if righteousness, or I'm sorry, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, here's our big truth. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Jesus' followers entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Trust is a little bit of a tricky concept for us. It's, it's just hard for us to kind of really meditate and think through. It, and it's because we all get trust in a simple form that's just really easy. We experience it. It's kind of one of those things like we know it when we feel it. And maybe it's because of that that we just don't really examine it or think through what trust really is and how trust really works very much. And so we tend to just kind of lean into our culture or our society's kind of uh, instincts when it comes to something like trust. And in the Western culture where we live, trust is often understood as relational equity. You know what I mean by that? We're friends, right? You care, so I trust. And man, there's a lot of value in that. That's, that's good. But most of the time, that is a passive trust. In other words, it, it's not an actionable trust. 
It's not the thing that you actually make decisions based on. Now, if you don't think about it very much, you go, what are you talking about? I make decisions about that all the time. But not really. Not when it comes down to need. See, that kind of passive trust, it's a little bit more kind of emotional. It's a, it's a feeling. It's a connection to someone. But that's not going to be the substance that you lean on necessarily in a time of need. You say, what do you mean? Give me an example. All right. So let's, let's imagine you need surgery, right? And Pastor Mike, man, he loves you. He cares about you. He's your friend. He's a likable dude, right? We like Mike. Mike comes up to you and he says, hey, man, I, you know, I'm your friend. I love you. I care about you. I'm one of your pastors. I've been praying for you in this. And I really feel led by the Lord to do your surgery. I mean, I'm not certain, you know, I don't want to speak for the Lord or anything, but I really feel a burden to help you out in this. Would you let Mike do your surgery? No. That might have been one of the, like, the, like everybody, the whole, the whole church mouth, no. All right, now wait, 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 let's think about this. How much more? Would Mike have to grow as your friend before you go, okay, now you can do the surgery? See, that would never happen, would it? He's not going to reach that point. Now, if Mike goes to school, he learns how to be a surgeon, he grows, and he's trained, you might let him do your surgery. You know why? Because you make decisions based on truth. You with me? When we see scripture talk about trust, it's hard for us because we instinctively go to this relational kind of equity that we build up in our culture that's greatly over-exaggerated and overweighted, And we just don't think very much about it because in the West where we live, we don't have very many needs. At least we don't think we do. And so most of our life is kind of passive in these relationships. It's not as tested in the same way. But when the Bible talks about trust, there's an absolute reality underneath it. It is better understood as submission to authority or personhood. Or in this case, a faithful creator. You are God. I am not. I submit. See, this is an actionable trust. It is a convictional reality at work in my life that regardless how I may feel, it changes my actions. It is a big truth with implications, with big ideas. So the example is, if Jesus came to you and you needed that heart surgery, and Jesus said, let me heal you with some spit and mud, do you know what you say? Yes, please. If Jesus says, let me heal you with the power of my voice from miles away, do you know what you say? Yes, please. The difference isn't the relational equity that you've built up with him. 
Rather, it is the submission to who he is, his authority, his power. So here, when Peter says entrust, it it means to submit. It means to commit. It's to hand over, to give care of, not because they're just buddies or not because it's just going to be comfortable, but because Jesus is worthy let me give you some examples you'll see in Scripture. First uh, Peter chapter 2. Peter is describing Jesus, our example, right? We follow him. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See their words, same word, entrusting himself. Jesus suffering, facing unjust judgment, entrusted, committed himself, gave himself, submitted to the one who judges justly the Father. In Luke 23, darkness covered the land and the curtain of the temple was torn in top to bottom and Jesus cried out in verse 46 with a loud voice and said father into your hands I commit same word I commit my spirit and having said this he breathed his last Jesus suffering facing death catch that death entrusted committed You see that in a lesser form with Paul in Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That word commend is our same word. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What's happening here? Paul, an apostle, is putting the church in the care of the elders. I'm committing the church to you. I'm entrusting the church to you. See, we're getting this understanding of entrust and what it means. It's not just we're buddies. There's more to it than that. There's a submission to it, a laying down, a recognition of the authority. And so what do we entrust? And Peter says, their souls, our souls. It's the same word where we get psyche. It, it gets translated both life and soul throughout the New Testament. It's one of those words that we really figure out which one it's talking about by the context and the passage that it's in. Probably a really famous passage that you'll recognize, Matthew 16 Beginning in verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And whoever would save his life, that's our word, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that's our word again, for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There's our word again. 
Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? There's our word again. Same word four times. Twice life, twice soul. You say, well, why didn't they just translate it the same way? Because what is meant is different in the context, and you can read it, and you can clearly see it. In one point, we're talking about this breath, this life, and this world, this flesh, our body, this life. In one sense, we are talking about a soul that doesn't die. It's, it, it, it lives on beyond this life. There's something within us that is us that is beyond the vessel of the flesh that we walk around in this life with. Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 10, 28, and he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So why are you making this point? Watch, because Peter is making an important distinction as he's writing to these elect exiles. Jesus' followers entrust God with more than their comfort, than their happiness, than their wealth, than their health in this life. Jesus' followers entrust Jesus with more than this life. They commit, they submit, they lay down their very soul. And not because of just some relational equity, but rather in a grace-filled recognition of who Jesus is. For he is worthy of my soul, of my eternity, all of it. Who is Jesus? Peter here speaks to a faithful creator, sovereign, in control, the one with authority, the one true God. Paul writes about Jesus in Colossians 1 verse 15 and he says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus' followers convictionally proclaim all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is king. He is Lord and no other. 
all things created for him, including me, including you. And Peter recognizes something. That when we suffer, when it's hard, we'll be tempted to forget. Remember, by the way, don't just think just some like abstract author for a moment. Remember, we're talking about Peter. Remember Peter's story? Peter recognizes in suffering, in hardship, we're going to be tempted to forget that suffering isn't outside of God's will. We're going to be tempted to forget that we have entrusted our soul, not just our life, not just our comfort, not just the things that we see and touch in this world, that we have entrusted our soul to Jesus. And we will be tempted to forget that Jesus is a faithful creator. Therefore, Jesus' followers entrust their soul to a faithful creator. And so with all this in mind, okay, just this big truth, like saturating our thought, I want to go back through the text. I want to kind of go back through some of these things that Peter is saying, and I just want to unpack these thoughts for you. I want to unpack a few big ideas. we got more than normal. Most of them will just kind of flow in line with our text. But I want you to just really let this thought have its way in the implications of your life this morning. So our first big idea, Jesus followers are set apart. At Tri-Cities, we say it this way, abide in Jesus. Jesus followers abide in Jesus. We're set apart, we belong, we find identity in him. Now you say, where do you see that in these sec- this section? And you really won't. You'll see the, the whole concept build to it through all of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to these elect exiles whose living hope is in Jesus. And he says to them a few paragraphs before in chapter 2 verse 9 that you are a chosen race a royal priesthood here it is listen a holy which means set apart nation a people for his own possession in verse 10 once you were not a people but now you are God's people you belong to him You are set apart for him. At Tri-Cities, we hold up that reality. We communicate that most commonly to say, Jesus followers abide in Jesus. We, We take that handle, that concept directly from John 15. Those words we sang this morning, they weren't just our words. They're from John 15. And Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do 
nothing. Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into fire and burned. Life in Jesus. Nothing. Death apart from Jesus. We like to say it this way sometimes. Abide or die. The Jesus follower's life is not his own. He has died to self and he lives in Jesus. His identity is in Jesus. There is no other way to entrust our soul to him. There's no other way to entrust our soul to the faithful creator apart from identifying with Jesus. Not in part, but dying to self and finding all of life in him. Why? Because apart from Jesus, there is what? Nothing. And in Jesus, there is everything. We have our position in him and we pursue his will as our own. And so this principle builds into these next few big ideas that Peter's going to walk through beginning in verse 12. First, Jesus' followers share in Jesus' standing. First Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If Jesus' followers abide in Jesus, they expect to share in Jesus' glory. I mean, that's just pretty common. The church gets that. We talk about that quite a bit. If we abide in Jesus, we expect to share in his glory, in his kingdom to come. How much in the church have you heard us talk about heaven and an eternity in the presence of God? Why is that? Because you earned it? No, but because you abide in Jesus. And so you share in his standing in the glory to come. So Peter says, don't be surprised then to share in his suffering in this world. There isn't anything strange about that. That's not odd. That just makes the most sense that anything's going to make. You identify with Jesus. If you follow Jesus in this world, you're going to suffer. Why? Because Jesus suffered in this world. And your identity is in him. You belong to him. The, the testing here that's, that's mentioned in verse 12, it's not like a pass-fail, like are you in or are you not kind of a test. It's not like that. We we're kind of reading our, our grade school test definition into that, not exactly what's happening here. Instead, we're talking about evidence or markers of abiding, and like how they display themselves. It's a tree that is tested by its fruit, meaning an apple tree brings apples. It, it's what they do. A Jesus follower is also tested by his or her fruit. And so don't be surprised when a Jesus follower produces the same fruit as Jesus in this world. 
takes the same suffering, the same criticism, the same slander, the same persecution, because we share in Jesus' standing. Next big idea. Jesus' followers share in Jesus' suffering and glory and rejoice. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We rejoice in our identity in Jesus. We rejoice in that we abide with him. We do not rejoice in our suffering. That doesn't make sense. We rejoice because we abide. See, suffering is just an identifying marker that our identity is in Jesus. And Peter's really careful to point this out, that suffering in the name of Jesus, suffering with Christ, is a good thing, a fruit, a testimony that you abide and belong to him and share in his standing. He's also very clear to point out that suffering in sin is bad. Peter says in verse 13, share in Christ's suffering. Verse 14, for the name of Jesus. Verse 16, suffer as a Christian. Verse 19, suffer according to God's will. When this happens in our life, we rejoice. We rejoice. We delight in the suffering that identifies us with Jesus, that gives testimony that we abide in him. By the way, this term rejoice, it's an imperative. It's a command to you and I who are in Christ Jesus. It's expected. It's an absolute that changes everything. See, what are you talking about? Well, I mean, you ever think about it? Like it's the same word that's used to like foretell Jesus' birth. I mean, this is a big deal. And we don't like to think about it, but what if like Mary was having a bad day? She's like, you know, things just aren't going right. The angel shows up. Angel's like, you know, Mary, rejoice. Mary's like, eh, I'm having a bad day. It's kind of laughable, right? If you're not tracking, let me give you another illustration. You've got... You lost $10, and you're all bummed because you needed the $10, and you lost $10. And about that time, someone knocks on your door, and you won the 7-Eleven $10 million grand prize for buying, like, the right gulpy. I don't know, whatever that is, right? And they give you $10 million, and you're like, yeah, I lost $10. You're not going to do that. Why? Because the information, the truth that is being revealed to you is so much greater than any loss you may be experiencing, any pain. Yeah, and it may be real pain, and it may really hurt, and your day may be really bad. Yet rejoice, delight in a living hope that surpasses this. Aim yourselves. Focus, prioritize on that truth. Set your mind and rejoice. It, it gives us great context for Philippians 4. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. 
when I lose my job because I refuse to celebrate sin as love, when I'm marginalized and slandered because I'm constantly talking about Jesus, when the false teacher's friends that I confronted in their false teaching ridicule and slander me, Paul says, again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice always, even as you share in Christ's sufferings. Why? Because it's a prelude to share in his glory. It is a marker that you are blessed, that you abide in him, and that you will spend all of eternity with him in his kingdom, in his presence. We rejoice because we're blessed. Our next big idea, Jesus' followers share in Jesus' suffering and are blessed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Again, we rejoice when insulted for the name of Jesus. We rejoice because we are blessed. We are blessed not because we suffer or we're insulted or slandered no we are blessed because we abide because we belong to him again suffering is just an identifying marker of that we share in Christ's suffering this is a good thing it's evidence of our very blessing of our belonging to him When we suffer in the consequences of the flesh, this is a bad thing. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. In other words, to suffer for the passions of the flesh is to identify with the flesh, and therefore the curse of sin. Nothing. Death. Separation. But to suffer for God's will, verse 19, is to identify with Christ, to be blessed, to share in his standing, to be reconciled, to be in right standing with God. You were once enemies of God, but now abiding in Jesus, you stand before God in right standing as a child who is holy and set apart. Why? Because of Jesus. The Beatitudes make this point really clear. If you remember in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching and he's going through these statements and he's blessed, blessed, and he's talking about what it is to be in the kingdom of God. And it ends with blessed are the persecuted in verses 10 and 11. And then in verse 12, Jesus says, are you ready? Blessed are the persecuted, verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you belong, you abide, you're in. Don't be surprised. 
They're persecuting you because they persecuted me. You're blessed. Therefore, blessed in our living hope. Next big idea, Jesus' followers exalt the name of Jesus and are unashamed. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Jesus' followers are not ashamed to identify with Jesus. Be careful, by the way, when you read this, that you don't excuse yourself out with a bad definition, that you don't hear the challenge in some of this, that you don't just give ashamed as rejection and a defiant denial, but you understand that ashamed is dismissing, passive, listen, not proclaiming. You say, where do you see that? Well, there's two great places you can see that right here in verse 16. One, Peter says, let him glorify God in that name. It's the opposite side of that. Don't be ashamed. Instead, proclaim, glorify God in that name. And the next is kind of in the context for the way Peter uses the word Christian. The the term here, Christian, just means Jesus follower. It's why we use that term so much at Tri-Cities. It's just the meaning of the word Christian. It's a Jesus follower. But Christians didn't name themselves. They didn't give themselves this name. Instead, it was a derogatory term. It was meant for insult. It was a ridicule. And Peter says, don't be ashamed to be identified with Jesus. What they mean for an insult, you give glory to the very name that you are associated with. This is just going to get harder. You know, two days ago, two days ago on Twitter, like MSNBC, all right? And you can think what you want one way about all the news networks, but let's just understand it's, it's a major news network. It's not like some obscure thing over here on the side. On their Twitter feed, this is two days ago, it is becoming increasingly clear that the U.S. is under siege. You ready? by Christian fundamentalists and traditionalists. If by fundamental Christian you mean one who believes the Bible, that we are enemies of the Creator, defiantly living in sin, a sin that separates us from God, makes us His enemy. and right to be condemned to hell. And yet God loved us and poured out his wrath on his only son that by faith in him we might take his identity as our own. That we might be reconciled.
if by the proclamation of that message, if by identifying with that Jesus, you find yourself slandered and condemned, judged and ridiculed, rejoice. Two more quick big ideas. These are a little different. Peter kind of circles back and he makes all these points a couple more times, but in a different way. I want to walk through it. These are kind of longer statements. First, since Jesus' followers are reconciled with difficulty, sinners who do not abide in Jesus will face a far worse outcome. It's kind of a a logical point Peter makes here. He says in verse 15, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now to understand what's happening here, you've got to make sure you get that word scarcely and understand what it means. It's one of the few times in the ESV, I think they probably would have been better to choose a different word for our context. Scarcely means with difficulty. It's what it means. Let me give you some other verses so you'll see it, just in the context. In Acts chapter 27, we're talking about some of these journeys, and we're talking about this windy condition in the storm in which they're sailing. And in verse 7, it says, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. It's the same word. Verse 8, it says, coasting along it with difficulty. Same word. In verse 16, we managed with difficulty. Same word. Here's the point. If the redeemed were rescued with difficulty, with suffering, with trial, with the very Son of God, hanging on a cross and giving his life with the wrath of the Father poured out on him with difficulty. What suffering do you expect awaits God's enemies? See, the suffering that we experience as those being redeemed cannot compare with that of those who remain enemies of God. Peter knows nothing of universalism. Last big idea. Since Jesus' followers entrust their souls to a faithful creator, Jesus' followers who abide in Jesus will keep doing good. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, we're tempted to stop doing the thing that brings suffering because it hurts. Like, I mean, let's just be honest. We're tempted to stop doing the thing that hurts. I, maybe I'm just way more selfish than the rest of you guys. I, I'm tempted to do, stop doing the thing that hurts. I'm tempted to compromise. I'm tempted to soften my words and my deeds. You listening? Not to identify with Jesus. <laughs> I mean the Jesus of the Bible. It, it's safe to identify with the Jesus 
of the culture. I'm tempted to compromise. I'm tempted to be ashamed of. I'm tempted to just identify with the Jesus of the culture that is safe and avoid the suffering of identifying with Jesus as he has revealed himself to be in the Scripture. Jesus' followers, they just keep doing good. And the good that identifies them with Jesus. That's the qualification. They are doing the good that identifies with him. They are the branches. He is the vine and his very work flows through them. And there's this illusion for us. That it gets easier. Like over time, it's just going to get easier. And I want you to know something. I think the exact opposite is true. It gets harder and harder to return for more. It gets harder with each scar. The pain is real. It hurts. The costs have been experienced. You know it. And to just lean back in again, it's hard. And so I want you to notice a nuance back in verse 12 of what Peter says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, you ready? When it comes upon you. Peter's been writing to these elect exiles, and they've been suffering. And if you've been reading through 1 Peter, man, they do. They have real suffering, real hardship. They've been taken captive. It is a struggle. It's hard. But it's not that bad yet. See, really soon, in like 64 AD, a few years after this letter's being written, Rome is going to burn. It's known as the Great Fire of Rome. And roughly two-thirds of the city will be destroyed. In that, by the way, this is just kind of more historic and traditional, like not scripture, just stay with me in the context of their day. In that, Nero will come under pressure from the people. There's good kind of supporting evidence that Nero is behind the fire and so the very people kind of begin to put pressure and in order to just divert that pressure Nero scapegoats the Christians he blames it on the Christians sounds sounds a little bit like us and our politicians today it's always easier to blame the other guy right he scapegoats them he says it's their fault And what happens next is a great persecution of Christians. They begin to seize Christians and crucify them upside down. They famously capture Christians and put them on poles and soak them in oil and lit Rome afire by burning Christians. According to tradition, this is the time in which Peter himself will be martyred 
So when Peter's writing this, it's not that bad. They suffered, but Peter knew more was coming. I don't think he knew this because he had some supernatural vision. I think he just knew because he knew the word. He knew Jesus. He knew what it meant to abide, and he knew how the world had treated him. And so when, and it was a matter of when, not if, when these elect exiles faced persecution to the point of the loss of life, when they watched their parents be crucified upside down, when they watched their spouses burning in the street corner like a human torch, when the suffering was at the point of loss of life in this world, Peter says, don't be surprised. Rejoice. You hear it now? Rejoice. Keep doing good. Don't hide. Rejoice. For you abide with Jesus. He is a faithful creator. The scriptures make this point in so many places. As the team comes up, I want to just read it to you from Romans chapter 8. It's my favorite summary of what we're talking about. I want to pick up in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see the connection? Provided we abide with him in this world. Provided we belong to him. Provided there is a moment in time in our life where we realize there is nothing apart from Jesus. And my life is in him. And so when suffering comes, church, and it's a matter of when, Rejoice. Rejoice. Because you abide. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As we prepare to respond in remembering that you gave your body and your blood, you gave your life so that through faith in you we may have life. As we respond, Lord, I pray that the gospel is proclaimed and that the power of your spirit is at work in this room. If there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, I pray that you will call them through your grace to saving faith. And for those of us who are here, Lord, who worship you, may we remember May we not be surprised to identify with you. And if and when the suffering comes, 
Lord, may we rejoice. And may the testimony of our living hope bring you glory and honor. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.